2020. It is a new year, and the books and the book reviews continue. I'm glad you're here with us. We're flattered that you're listening in the new year. We're going to keep our book review series going for the foreseeable future. We have approximately 50 episodes remaining, which means if we keep a steady pace this year in 2020, we will finish by the end, by 2021, which is you know, kind of an intimidating but also thrilling prospect at the same time. It's just me this week again, just Travis, one brother on the on the pod this week. I will be reviewing a text by Thomas Nash called The Tears of the Night, which is, as far as I found online, a complete text. It's not segmented or taken from anything else. If this is your first time listening to the pod, hey, I'm flattered. Welcome. And again, Happy New Year. And if you're a repeat listener, you'll know this already, but this is a book review show Our aim and intention here is to talk about the author, talk about the work that we read, analyze the style, try not to get too spoilery if that's relevant. I think in this case it will not be relevant, uh, which for reasons I'll talk about. And yeah, just trying to give recommendations or ideas for things you could read. And hey, if that's part of your New Year's resolution, all the more relevant and serendipitous for us here today. So without any further introduction, let's talk about Thomas Nash. This was a dense read. I did not enjoy reading this for the most part. It also didn't help that I made a crucial error I've made in weeks past on the pod, which is that I started reading ahead. I was about a book and a half ahead, which meant that before recording this today, I actually had to basically reread the entire thing, which was quicker because I had annotated my copy and left notes and things. But it was still unpleasant to go back to it. I'm actually going to flip the order of the podcast this week since it's just me. I'm going to break with tradition, doing all kinds of wild card things here. And I'm just going to review this right away. This is a one. And on our show, that means you should not read this. It is a pass completely. And I'll explain why. It's basically unreadable. Uh, In my light research, and I did turn to Wikipedia and Google Scholar or whatever they call that free Google source of articles, I read through two, I read through a couple pages of a book on medieval literature, and the kindest word I could find for this text, and I guess Nash's style in general, I suppose, was that people kept calling it discursive, which is a word that just means not organized or like a random assembly of parts. And this definitely feels that way when you're reading it, this text again, which is called The Terrors of the Night. Nash does have a few structural components and sort of some light transitions at times, and he certainly sets up the text in a very clear manner. He basically says, hey, I'm writing this to my friends to talk about what kinds of things lurk in the nighttime, what kinds of apparitions and demons and whatever haunt the night, specters and such. But there's no chapters, there's no sections, no subsections, and there are very few transitions. There's even some kind of embarrassing transitions in there where he just outright says, uh, here's one from page 20, actually, I pulled the quote from this. He just literally says, yet now I remember me and his purpose. I have not lost my way so much as I thought. So he's acknowledging as he goes that he's, he gets off topic, that he veers away from some point he was trying to make. And you feel it. You definitely feel it. It doesn't help that this is uh, published in 1594, and it was like peak Elizabethan England prose. It's dense. It stylistically kind of wraps around itself. You have modifiers and sentences that take up five lines. Semicolons are deployed frequently and, and with different usage than, you know, current English than we currently use them. They're used in a variety of ways. I was trying to find a a spell or a sentence that I thought would kind of 
give a emblematic or sort of like a representation of his style just right away before I do the review and get into detail. And I think I found a good one on page 27. Let me read this in full. I might run out of breath halfway through. I guess we'll find out here. He says, quote, sufficeth, yeah, I can't even, I'm not even going to edit that out. I can't even read. It's, it's suffice eth, which obviously is a word that's faded from our uses, usage. We would say suffice it to say, but he says sufficeth. So here we go. Let me try that again. I'll cue it up. I'm just going to leave all this in. Who cares? Um, if you've come this far, then, you know, you're in it for the long haul, probably. Sufficeth, he set a good face on it and will swear he can extract a better balsamum out of a chip than the balm of Judea. Ye, all receipts and authors you can name, he syllogizeth of, that word I knew, but it's spelled differently, and makes a pish at, in comparison of them he hath seen in red, whose names, if you ask, he claps you in the mouth with half a dozen spruce titles, never till he invented them heard of by any Christian. And that's a sentence. It has two, three, two semicolons, litany of commas. It's essentially, I would assume, again, for me anyway, I can only project here, unlistenable. I'd be shocked if you even followed. You probably got bored of listening to me read it halfway through, which was kind of the point in the demonstration. It's a text that requires attention, attentiveness, complete, you know, alertness in your literary faculties. You can't rest on this or rest while reading it. You're probably almost definitely going to be making notes. I know I made a ton while reading. It will require immediate and then longer rereadings. And so that, those are the expectations you should set for yourself when you approach Thomas Nash or this work. I will say it's not the longest. You know, all these Penguin Little Black Classics in this collection come in between like 45 and 60 pages. This one's somewhere in there. But it's, it's incredibly dense, and you have to just absolutely raise your mental sort of acuity to the highest level if you're going to approach it at all. And hopefully that sentence is just a nice little barrier, uh, set the standard before we get into it. I did pluck some other quotes and things that are certainly more digestible than that, but that that was just a representation. So it's a one, folks. This is a pass. Do not read this. If you want to hear about it, hopefully you do. Hopefully you're at least a little curious. I'm uh, going to analyze it and break it down now, talk more about the style. Um, but uh, given the, the intensity of this text and my dislike of with read or just like during reading it while reading it, I thought I'd break with tradition a bit and before assessing it, actually just say that. I think then when we talk about how I want to set up the pod today, because I have been experimenting with structures and trying different things while my podcast brother is away, um, I think there's only one way to do this one, and that is that I have taken three quotes from this text and I'm going to use those quotes as the analytical lens through which I will critique the text itself, meaning I'm going to use his quotes against him. It feels like the only fair way to assault this text with analysis, and it almost, I wrote down here that it almost kind of reminds me of when children uh, do the, like, stop hitting yourself game as kids. They're, like, play fighting or, or kind of really fighting, and, you know, they're grabbing their hands and hitting the other kid with their own hands, and, you know, stop hitting yourself. It's That's basically what I'm doing here. This text has me feeling childish. What can I say? I admit it. So I've drawn three quotes out here, and hopefully these three quotes and me discussing them will explain why I disliked reading this so much. Let's get into it. Quote number one from page 48. It says, quote, since truth is ever drawn and painted naked, and I have lent her but a leathern patched cloak at most to keep her from the cold, that is, that she come off 
not too lame, oh, not too lamely, sorry, and coldly. I'm going to extend the metaphor a little bit. If that's true, I would have preferred him to have dressed Truth up in some gloves, a hat, I'd, I'd take some wool socks, take some long underwear, anything else. Because if there are truths in this text, and I actually think there kind of are a few, then I would like a, a bit more dressing up. I would like a bit more approachability, and I'd like truth not to be so coldly naked. The quote itself, in fact, I guess I'll just start there. I really like that quote. He's talking about the duty of a, a writer to their reader, and he essentially asserts you know, the writer's job is to make things that are unpleasant or maybe something really obvious, cold and true and naked, and make it, you know, warm for a reader, you know, digestible. Fiction, I think, does that better than anything else, frankly. Um, But, you know, an essay like this could do it too. At times in this uh, text, the advice is straightforward. It's comprehensible. There are things discussed, topics that might be like slightly outdated, but still true. Here's one from page nine I pulled. He says, quote, A man that will entertain them, meaning entertain vulgar pleasures, like too much food, too much drink, etc. A man that will entertain them must not pollute his body with any gross carnal copulation or inordinate beastly desires, but love pure beauty and pure virtue. Uh, Certainly, it's the new year. We're all trying to diet, you know, again, (laughs) for the who knows how many of time for me, too many times. Uh, we're all trying to live better, trying to be more healthy, whatever. So it's a sentiment right there that though it's couched in sort of older language, Christian values with the terms of pure ver- pure beauty and pure v- virtue, we could probably trace the roots of those ideas back. And I think that's, he means it in sort of a Christian tradition way. But those are just easy to understand sentiments that you don't want to waste yourself on vulgar things, that you want to dedicate yourself to something larger, pure, better than yourself or something you know, more righteous or honorable, something like that. And that's a great sentiment. It's a nice sentence. Though it wasn't done, I cut it off. It was probably 10 lines longer than that. And so we do glimpse moments when he sort of takes these things, these almost universal truths, and hands them to us in a in a well-written way. Um, and then he, you know, and then he doesn't. And then, he, and then he, he'll baffle you in the next sentence. Right on the previous page, in this case, uh, right before it, he says... And I'm just going to read this sentence. I don't even really know what it meant. I think if I went back and looked at the context, I could probably situate it maybe. But just listen to this. This is a couple lines before on a different page. Hence it comes that mares, as Columella reporteth, looking their forms in the water, run mad. A flea is but a little beast, yet if she were not possessed with a spirit, she could never leap and skip so as she, as she doth. Frosard said... Or saith again. Sorry, the language is the language. Obviously, requires some translation. This book actually comes with a an index in the front of a, a ton of words that mean different things and words that are unfamiliar. Let me start that sentence over. Frosard saith the Earl of Foe had a familiar that presented itself unto him in the likeness of two rushes fighting one another. Not so much as Tweaksbury mustard, but hath a spirit in it, or else it would never bite so. Where do we start unpacking this one? It begins with a sentence that is sort of an interesting idea about, I don't know, self-recognition or identity. These, you know, horses seeing their own reflection and, and being driven mad by it. That's also, there's a Greek myth about that. Then it talks about the flea spirit, and there's some kind of earl and a familiar, then a pun or some kind of pun with mustard and bite, like maybe kind of a harsh tasting mustard. And that's just, I mean, that's just a series of a couple sentences in a paragraph 
those kinds of digressions or those kinds of, I guess you could call it dense if you wanted, I think that would be generous, but those kinds of digressions are intense here and they're present nearly on every page. I wrote down here another note. He had he had another digression later in the work about how some people want to interpret dreams, but then some, and, and most of that he thinks is false, but then there are also people who are more like prophets or they receive like divine truth, which is a different thing. And I think it's kind of an interesting point, and, and there's some historical examples he could have drawn on maybe more, but then he goes from talking about that for a few pages to quickly saying on 25, quote, some dunghills of dirty boxes and plasters and of toasted cheese and candles ends when he's describing people who are liars, like standing up in the in the courtyards and trying to lie to people. It's, it's again, it's just confusing imagery. It'll move you from dense sort of moment to dense moment, and it can be very hard to follow. Um, so I don't know if his prose uh, in his own metaphor needs more clothing or less. I think more would, would be lovely. Um, but yeah, digressions about things like that. He has a couple paragraphs about how Icelandic monks get to do the sacrament in ale instead of wine. And I think he even at the end of that says, I'm not sure why I wrote that. Or so he has strange admittances throughout of just saying, yeah, I'm not sure what I was saying there, but oh, well, back to the matter at hand. Um, so I think in his own words, let's, let's clothe it up a little bit more. Let's dress it up. It can be a little bit more formal for the occasion. The next quote from page 16 might be my favorite in the whole thing, the whole work. It says on 16, quote, The clearest spring a little touched is creased with a thousand circles, as those momentary circles for all the world, such are our dreams. Which is kind of an interesting and beautiful thought. He, When he's talking about dreams, which is his main concern, I would say, in this, he does have some really poignant thoughts, very lucid ideas that are intriguing. But if we use that image kind of to think about his own work, he has too many, he embraces the circles too often. He lets the ripple go on for far too long instead of maybe tossing in another stone or doing a new ripple, or I'm not sure how we would use the metaphor against him exactly, but he has this way of taking a point, taking points and just disjointing it, um, maybe even to a repetitive degree that uh, to a modern reader would probably just make you think, man, this person needs to be edited, frankly. I mean, I thought that a few times here. Um, between two pages, for example, he repeats the following quotes about dreams. I'm just going to read all three of them in a row. First, he says, A dream is nothing else but a bubbling scum or froth of the fancy, which the day hath left undigested. And he says, Dreaming is no other than groaning, while sleep our surgeon hath us in cure. And then he says, A dream is nothing else but the echo of our conceits in the day which are all, you know, variations of an idea. I don't think any of those ideas are profoundly that different. Maybe the surgeon cure one has some kind of meaning about healing in it, you know, but I think he's, he's basically repeating himself. He's walking in circles, and between those quotes, you know, he'll digress to another topic and talk about dreams maybe a bit more, but he returns to this kind of repetitive style, and I just don't think it works all the time. There are too many ripples. You can never tell if he's fully coming together with a coherent thought or if he's just going to jump off and, you know, take another dive or follow another echo in the water. Um, and it can be frustrating to read. He also at times takes a simple question, or at one time at least takes a simple question. On 24 he says, or asks, Shall I impart unto you a rare secrecy, how these great famous conjurers and cunning men ascend by degrees to foretell secrets as they do? He's essentially talking about like false prophets, soothsayers, people who, I don't know, shaman maybe? I'm not sure 
if that were that's probably not the right term for this but people who essentially can predict the future like in ancient greece they would have the oh gosh what's the term i'm just going to struggle live here on mic i'm not going to cut this either if you're in it you're in it you're with me all the way they would writhe around and they kept them somewhere anyway prophets essentially people that whose designation in society is to try and predict the future and it's an intriguing question but then he goes on for eight pages and there's just all kinds of points made within and just any organization would do it justice or probably help because he talks about things like you know the rich versus the poor how can they be scammed or not he talks about thievery and why some of these sort of uh, people gifted in rhetoric are thieves and some aren't. He talks about Satanism. He ends with an example about Gog Magog, who I had to look up, which is apparently some giant in Albion in England, slayed by Cornelius or something. You know, it doesn't, there's so many examples like that. You'll have to keep your browser at the ready, probably, while reading anything by Nash. I'm assuming this is just emblematic of his style. Um, he literally concludes that digression with a sentence that says, quote, I have rid a false gallop these three or four pages. And again, it's in his acknowledgement that he's gone off, you know, he's gone out of focus and he's gone sort of on a tangent. It can be frustrating to read that and just think, well, then what have I been doing? I've been reading this, you know, I've been trying to ingest this, which has already taken me extra effort. I could have read something far more digestible with my time. Why am I reading this? Why am I doing following you in this style? And I think that's a valid question for a reader to ask. And I don't think this text will provide you with an answer that would soothe. I really think, to return to his own language, um, if he had kind of the power to rein in some of these ripples, or maybe just cast fewer of them, or, you know, to not maybe throw as big a stone or something, I, I think this could be fascinating, you know, in the language of our own po- of our pod here. This could be a two, for example, like, yeah, a qualified recommendation. Maybe you will find this enjoyable or interesting. And I think it certainly is a historical document. It could be fascinating, too. You know, he has these thoughts and ideas that sort of mix with Christianity. You know, he's a few hundred years out from neuroscience and so, or even like, you know, psychology. So there are these thoughts about dreams and, and ghouls and demons, demonology, Satanism, that it's all pretty interesting. But gosh, he, some of these uh, ripples, there's too many and, and they come quickly and it can be really exhausting to track them all. I have one final quote that I would like to hold up as a lens against Thomas Nash, and it is from page two, right near the beginning, and the quote is this. Some divines have had this conceit, that God would have made all day and no night if it had not been to put us in mind, there is a hell as well as a heaven. This is a classic Christian idea that in theology philosophy has been debated over and over, And it's a quote, frankly, that applies just directly to this work, because I'm certain that Nash was not chosen blindly. He's not a reader, reader, I'm sure he read plenty. He's not a writer, rather, that I ever had to encounter in my studies. You know, you probably didn't encounter him either. His contemporary Shakespeare, just about everybody in American schooling has to read at some point if you get through high school, right? And so that's a common one, but Nash was totally foreign to me before this. Um, that's all to say, I assume he was chosen for a reason, and I think he's not without merit. No writer this famous would ever be chosen blindly, and there's definite signs in the collection that he's got incredible style and insight. You know, he's pretty intriguing, got some intriguing ideas, and can really write, but, you know, maybe it's the 400-year-old prose, 
maybe it's just the density of the ideas and maybe he is just discursive and meaningly or meaningfully obtuse or trying to be obtuse. A lot of it just doesn't come together. And I think most moderators would be incredibly frustrated reading this. In my searches for clarity on this text, when I was just doing some like Googling and, you know, tracking down Wikipedia things, I found a book called Renaissance Historical Fiction, Sidney, Deloney, and Nash, which I'm sure are just, those are three authors. And I took this quote from page 191. I was clicking around, just looking for general thoughts about his work. And this quote, though it's long, I do want to read the whole thing, I think summarizes, for many people apparently, the frustration with reading Nash and kind of what he what his style represents in the history of English literature. I'll begin here with the quote. For many readers, Nash's works seem to be all parts and no whole, and the consistent aim of criticism of Nash has been to provide an account that can bring some kind of conceptual order to the seemingly miscellaneous character of his writing while still doing justice to its variousness. Hudson, who I guess must be a critic, says that, quote, we should start considering the way in which apparent shapelessness, a lack of continuity and coherence, might function as a politically and morally significant aesthetic in its own right. And they followed up on that uh, annotation, or with an annotation from C.S. Lewis, who basically said that Nash's prose is meaningless and shouldn't be read. It's kind of just like meaningless um, rambling. It's an interesting idea. I think the problem, and Ryan and I have run into this with other works from this collection, is devoid of historical context then, and devoid of kind of a study-based approach to the work, can a modern reader appreciate it? And I just think the answer here is no. If his aesthetic was some kind of political or moral uh, aesthetic choice, some kind of deviation, some kind of statement... No modern person who picks this up casually is going to know that they're going to have to. Need, they're going to need a copy that's heavily marked and annotated, or has some kind of guides or criticism in it to help. And they'll need to go in kind of mentally prepared for that. And so I just think when you look at the heaven and the hell part of this work, I, I suppose the heaven has to be acknowledged. You know, there's some great writing in here. Some quotes. All three of the quotes I chose, I really enjoyed. I thought they were interesting. But the hell is the style, and it was a, it was a lot to endure, uh, as far as anything for can be for fifty five pages. wasn't too bad, uh, but it's dense and pretty unforgiving. Hopefully, the quotes that I've pulled, at least the three that I used f- against Nash himself, showed you that yeah, there's a lot of you know heaven quote unquote in here, a lot of intrigue, which is probably my adjective of choice or noun of choice on the pod, but overall. I just can't recommend this. It's it can be a hellish read, and I think and I thank Nash for the deployment of that word so that I may use it. I do have to admire before I close out just the breadth of topics covered in an essay supposedly about how nighttime is so dangerous and how nighttime has all these evils lurking in it. He covers things like love and trust. He talks about how we are inclined uh, to with a natural kind of love and how that sooner hearkens us to hearing than otherwise, meaning, you know, we're more likely to trust ones we love and therefore be hurt by them, which is kind of a poignant but true statement at times. He talks about preferring death um, from the suavity of slumber from being bitten by a snake than the sunder by little and little with vultures of that Prometheus endures, which is kind of an interesting way to look at, you know, your own death and your own passing. He talks about fear. He says, quote, more aptly, it may be said, everyone shapes his own fears and fancies as he list. 
sort of saying instead of looking at your own future or destiny, some people just focus on their own fears and that's what they create, which, I mean, that statement can be unpacked in a million different ways. It's a really interesting sentiment. I just find some of that or some of those ideas, most of the ideas don't pay off. They're kind of isolated as you move quickly and sometimes confusingly in this discursive way through a, a very dense text. Even literary titans of history, I think, need editors, people. That is my lesson from this work. I did enjoy talking about it. I can't believe I almost made it to 30 minutes. I thought this would take 10 minutes. Um, but I, I did like, to using the quotes within it to sort of look at his own style presented. And I thought the quotes, those three that I pulled, were pretty interesting. Maybe you will find yourself curious and go to read some Nash if you do. Good luck. And Godspeed, if that's your if that's your belief system, if that's your kind of thing, you will need some sort of help, I bet. Please let us know, you know, find us on Instagram or Twitter or something and let us know how it's going if you decide to pick up some Nash. And if not, hey, you know, 2020, the year's going to go by quickly. Spend your time meaningfully doing things that give you pleasure and make you think. Next week, we have coming up a decidedly different text, though dense in a way. I'll get into that on next week's pod. It's Edgar Allan Poe. We're jumping back to an American writer and author, something a little more, not contemporary, of course, but a little more recent than the 1590s. And we cover a couple of short stories in there. I think there's four total. We'll get into that next week. I think it'll be a a nice return to maybe a stronger recommendation than a one. As always, I thank you for listening in, flattered as ever. Please follow us on Instagram. We've got a feed up there, which is um, The Stumped is the name of the account. I'll probably start posting to Twitter soon. Also, if you're interested in fiction, I think this year a new project of mine is going to be to post a lot more fiction to our website, which is thestumped.com. So if that interests you, perhaps next week uh, after I post the first thing I have planned, I'll give a little bit more detail at the end of the podcast and just talk about what the plan is for that project. Um, Instagram is where you can find the artwork that I do for each episode. There are some ink drawings that I've been working on throughout most of the last year, at least the second half of the year for sure. I've been putting in more time into those. So if that interests you, follow us on Instagram, We're the Stumped. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope to talk with you again next week. And until then, we will see you between the classics.